And good morning. I also want to welcome all the guests who are here today. Whatever brought you here, we're glad. I um, want to welcome those who are joining us online, wherever you are. Uh, we're glad you joined in with us today. Excited about VBS this week. I hope you are too. And I love the prayer time we had earlier today. Uh, in two weeks, I'm going to be gone the next two weeks. So on August 12th, I'm going to start a new 15-week series in the Gospel of Mark. So I invite you to go ahead and read Mark, listen to Mark, study it a little bit. It's going to be our fall series, and I look forward to having 15 weeks to dive into this gospel, to unpack the story of Jesus with you and for you. And I want to invite you uh, to think of two Sundays over that 15-week period that you can invite someone to come to church with you. Um, it's a challenge I've given the leadership and the church. And an invitation to come to church is not the only invitation we extend to friends and families and neighbors, but any invitation to try to usher someone into the presence of God is an invitation worth extending. Today, uh, it's the fifth of five, uh, a five-week series that I've done called Bible Tweets. Uh, over a year ago, I, I, just in my own reading the Bible, I found so much power in these short, small little books. And there are five books in the Bible that are only one chapter each. So we've taken one book each week. And my, my purpose is not like to tell you that you've got to know what these books are about to get saved or that there's going to be some test one day. And if you don't know what the theological significance is of Obadiah or Philemon or 3 John, that you may not make it in the end. Like you can, you can be saved without knowing these books. But what we find in God, in life with God and in the Bible, is that there's often power in the small things. That a lot of times, God may never ask you to do something big in the kingdom. God may ask you to do a thousand small things that add up in the kingdom. A, a small things that point people to a really big God. But what we have found in Jesus and throughout the Bible and in life with Jesus is a lot of times it's the small things that add up. And often it's, a, it's the things that have been forgotten, the things that have been neglected, those books in the Bible that maybe you've never read because it's like they were over in some clothes shelf or cabinet somewhere that maybe there's something powerful in them. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Jude today. You can go to the very back of your Bible. The last book in the Bible is Revelation. Jude is right before Revelation. It's a short little book. It's always given me a lot of problems. I'm going to walk you through it today. My purpose today is not for you to become an expert in the book of Jude. It's for you to see how the power and the goodness of the gospel of Jesus is in this little book. This may be your first time in church ever, your first time in church in years and, and you may have come thinking you wanted to hear, uh, like, Jude, that's, that's where we're going to go. But I, I hope that you can take something from this book that can be a blessing for your life. I want to begin where Jude ends. I want to begin in the place where uh, Mark took us for communion today. And the very end of Jude, Jude 24 and 25, uh, a mentor, dear friend of mine, Randy Harris, he's preached here a couple of times uh, when I've been gone. Uh, Randy ends every single sermon, every single class. He teaches college at ACU. He ends every class he teaches by reciting and giving a benediction, this blessing of Jude 24 and 25. And it goes like this. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. That's how Jude ends his book. Short little letter 
And it ends with these two verses where you get a sense of Jude's love for this church, whoever he's writing to. Now, I've sat in hospital rooms with people before, and they know that their time on this earth, as we know it right now, is close to the end. And a lot of times people have asked me, multiple times I've had people say, Josh, I just wonder if I've done enough. And not just people dying, sometimes I'm just with people, and the question that some of you may have is, have I done enough that if I were to die today that I would be in heaven with God forever, that I would enter into God's everlasting kingdom? And I think it's the wrong question to ask. For those who are in Jesus, Jesus has done enough. For those in Jesus, Jesus is enough. That his enough redefines who we are so we don't have to worry about trying to do enough to get saved or to please God. Now, being identified as a Christian means there is responsibility and a call to maturity and development that is on us, but it's not about you doing enough. And I know when it, even when it comes to falling, because here Judy sets out this statement of for God to the one who is able to keep you from falling. And I know there are some of you in this room, some of us, who have fallen before in life and we've been able to get up fairly quickly. It may have been a fall because of a moral failure or because a job was too stressful or went wrong or what, relational dysfunction, divorce, whatever it may be, forms of depression, abuse, anxiety. There are times where you may have fallen and you were able to get up quick, maybe because God gave you that strength or maybe because you have surrounded yourself with a support system that they weren't going to let you fall. But I bet there are some of us in this room, too, who have fallen before, and we were down for a while. We were flat. We were down for the count, not knowing how we would get back up again because relationships spiraled. There's abuse that was so significant, and no one seemed to care or seemed to listen. There, there are times where we have fallen, and we've been down. Jude ends his little, short little letter by saying, to God who is able to keep you from falling. And not only that, but to present you before God's glorious presence. That getting into God's presence was Jesus's responsibility, not yours. And what Jesus has done is he has made a way where he can take you and place you in the presence of God without blemish. He's able to take you and place you into the presence of God without stains, without the, the guilt of sin, without shame, without disgrace. And the way he said it, and Mark referred to it earlier in communion, the way Jude says is, is that you're able to stand in the presence of God with great joy, Meaning that you don't have to stand in the presence of God with great fear of the wrath of God taking you out or not. It's that through Jesus, you're in the presence of God with great joy because connection has been made available for you in and through Jesus. If you read these last two verses of Jude, don't you get the sense that Jude is for people? He's for the church. He doesn't want to see people fall. He wants to see people thrive and stand in the presence of God and live into what it means to be everything God is and God intends for us to be. So with that in mind, let's get through some of the other stuff in Jude. Let's go all the way back to Jude, verse one. Here's how he describes himself. Here's how he starts his short little letter. And what he says is, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. All right, now, this has been debated, but for most people, they believe Jude is referring to James, not the apostle James, but that Jude is referring to James, who is the leader of the church in Acts chapter 15. He becomes one of the primary leaders in the church, the church of Jerusalem and the churches outside of Jerusalem. And James 
was the brother of Jesus. All right, so Matthew and Mark tell you that mother and Jesus' brothers often came to him. So if James is the brother of Jesus and Jude calls himself the brother of James, doesn't that make Jude the brother of Jesus too? So if I, I, my older sister's Jenny, my younger brother's Jonathan, if I were to say something like, I'm a, a brother of Jonathan, but a servant of Jenny, does that sound right? Let me ask you this. If you were the brother or the sister of Jesus, would you not wear that where people could see it every single day of your life? Whether it's a boast or a humble brag or whatever it may be, wouldn't you want people to know that? I mean, I would wear it on a t-shirt, a hat, a necklace, a chain, tattoos, whatever it took. I would want people to know, you messed with me, I got a brother who brought you into the world and he can take you out of the world, all right? <laughs> I, need, I want you to know that my brother has the power to raise the dead from, to raise those from the dead. Like he's, this is my brother, his name's Jesus, but Jude, he doesn't do that. He calls himself the servant of Jesus and the brother of James. Because I think at this point in Jude's life, he had surrendered his life to Jesus as the Savior and the Lord. And he's taken a very humble position knowing that he's not even worthy to call himself the brother of Jesus. He's the servant of Jesus. And as the servant of Jesus and the brother of James, he says to those who are, and there are just a few words that have given me ways to pray over this church this week, to those who were called, who are beloved, in God the Father, and kept safe for Jesus Christ. Called, beloved, kept safe. Those who were called by God, beloved of God, and they are kept safe for Jesus. And that's how he starts out writing. We don't know exactly who Jude writes to, but most people think Jude's not just writing a letter that's going to travel everywhere. He's writing to some specific church. And you have it in verse 3. If you just highlight verse 3, this tells you why Jude is writing this little letter. And what he says is, Beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write an appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So it's like Jude saying, hey, I had one reason I was going to write, and I sat down to write, and I was going to write about this salvation we share in Jesus. But as I started writing, I heard some other things going on in the life of your church. So I've decided I needed to address something else going on in your church. So I'm not just going to write about that salvation we share in Jesus, but I need to write to you about the importance of contending for the faith and persevering in your faith, because apparently this is a challenge for the church Jude is writing to. Um, one of the problems in the church where Jude was writing is not so much Gnosticism, meaning that it's not that people were coming in and like teaching all this false teaching or that Jesus wasn't fully God or that Jesus wasn't fully human. The problem Jude is addressing is this. It's nominal Christianity, which means there were people coming into this church who were Christians by name only. They wore the name, but they didn't live the life. Has this not been a problem in Christianity for over 2,000 years? People wear the name, but they don't live the life. Have you ever been a member of something by name only? And of course, we often go to like a workout facility, a gym, where you get yourself a membership, but you never go. But if someone were to ask if you have a membership at a gym, you can say yes. 
um, nominal Christianity, people by name only, people who would confess Jesus as Lord. I think one of the big challenges of evangelism in the South, where churches are everywhere, is that almost everyone you run into, and it's not going to be this way in the future, but over the last 20 to 50 years it has been, that with churches everywhere, almost anyone you run into has some kind of church experience they can point to of somebody who used to take them to church or some conversion experience they had. So even though they're not living the life, they have something they can fall back on of some experience that they've had with Jesus or with the church in the past. And Jude's writing to this church saying, hey, you need to be aware that this complacency that creeps into the church can end up destroying faith for generations to come if we don't do something about it. Back in April, I walked out my front door, and we don't go out our front door a lot. We go out the back. And there were a few weeds in the flower bed. And I looked at them, and I thought, I'll get to them in a couple of weeks. Too much going on. My kids are playing baseball. Work's crazy. It's raining some outside, and I don't want to go work in the rain. And then a few weeks ago, I went out and looked, and weeds had totally taken over the flower bed. You know what I'm saying? This happened to you before? So I thought my kids were at church camp, and I was home for that week, and I thought, I need to do something about this. And I thought, I'm just going to dig them up. It wasn't as easy as digging them up. And I found myself down on my hands and knees pulling up these weeds. There are parts of my body, and I work out quite a bit. I don't get that sore, but there were parts of my body after pulling weeds that were sore that I did not know could get sore. My fingertips felt like they were going to fall off. You ever been there before? And I had gloves on, all right? Now, I'm urban to the core. I, I'm not, I just I don't do a lot in nature. There, a worm came out, and I like gave out this scream that I'm embarrassed it even came out of my body, all right? Um, pulling every single one of these weeds. And I know what it takes for a flower bed is also what often happens in our hearts. All it takes is one weed that we see that we choose not to do something about that can slowly take over a flower bed. It can slowly take over a heart. It can slowly take over a church. So Jude's writing about this, and he's wanting to point people to faith in Jesus and truth in Jesus, uh, and he's wanting to point people to that truth because if we focus so much on problems, but we're not focused on the truth that is in Jesus, we're focusing on the wrong thing. I'm sure you've heard before that in the mint where they make money in America that there's supposedly there's a room there where people are trained to notice counterfeit bills. And the way they train them to notice Counterfeit bills is not by giving them fake money to study. It's they give them the real thing. And they search the real thing and know the real thing and study it so that if a counterfeit ever comes in front of them, they know it's real because they've been focusing on what is true. And when it comes to the church or what's going on in the world, sometimes we focus on all the problems and then occasionally go to God for truth when we need to be focused on the truth and let that become the lens we view all the problems through. So Jude 4 through 19 is when Jude gets crazy, all right? And I'm just going to read all this together, and I want you to read it with this in mind. Jude cares about this church So he cares about it so much that he's going to lay in front of them the seriousness of stumbling blocks. He's going to lay in front of them divine judgment that there is punishment for disobedience. And he's going to lay in front of them these extreme examples, 
hoping that he can create a little bit of action in this church. So here's how it goes in verse four. For certain intruders have stolen in among you people who long ago were designated for this condemnation as ungodly, who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now these people coming into the church, I don't think they're denying Jesus with their mouths, they're denying him with their actions. Look in verse five. Now I desire to remind you, though you are fully informed that the Lord, who once for all saves a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own position, but left their proper dwelling, talking about fallen angels, talking about Satan, he has kept in eternal chains and deepest darkness for the judgment of the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, which in the same manner as they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural lust, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these dreamers also defile the flesh, reject authority, slander the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil and disputed about the body of Moses, which, by the way, this is not a story found in the Bible. It's in a book outside of the Bible. But apparently Jude thought the church knew what this was, so he's bringing it up, that there's this dispute over the body of Moses. He did not dare to bring a condemnation of slander against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people slander whatever they do not understand, and they are destroyed by those things that like irrational animals they know by instinct. Woe to them. For they go the way of Canaan, Cain, who was a murderer, and abandon themselves to Balaam's, er Balaam's error, who tried to lead the people of God astray for the sake of gain, and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts. Jude's talking about like communion, when people come together around a love feast. These are blemishes on these. While they feast with you without fear, feeding themselves, they are, and listen to all these metaphors and images he throws out. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, uprooted, wild ways of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the deepest darkness has been reserved forever. And I think after he got to like the second one, people were like, all right, dude, we got it with autumn trees without fruit, all right? But he keeps going, deepest darkness has been reserved forever. Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, see the Lord is coming with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict everyone of all the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers and malcontents. They indulge their own lusts. They are bombastic at speech, flat, flattering people to their own advantage. But you, beloved, must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. For they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers indulging their own ungodly lusts. And it is these worldly people devoid of the spirit who are causing divisions. Now, can we just stand and sing Kumbaya right now, right? He just lays it out, talking about divine punishment, seriousness of stumbling blocks, and going to some extreme examples, both in the Bible and also in books that told other stories that people would have been aware of, trying to create in that church some outrage, trying to create in them a seriousness about sin and complacency. And then he gets to verse 20, where he wants to tend to the hearts of people in the church, but you... Beloved, 
And here are five things. They're going to be on the screen. I invite you to write them down. Take these home. Five things, five practical things Jude gives this church. That after all these warnings about stumbling blocks, and here's what he lays out in front of them. But you, beloved, build yourself up on your holy faith. Jude knew what we still need to know, that being a Christian is more than a confession you make. It's a life you live. How do we live out the confession? How do we live out the truth of our baptisms? It's more than just what you know or a once-in-a-lifetime decision you made. It's more than looking at Jesus as a fire insurance plan or a safety net or a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's, it's a life of maturity and development. You build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Two, you pray in the Holy Spirit. And praying in the Spirit, I think, is praying in the truth of God, the spontaneity of God. It's trusting in the Spirit. It's sometimes developing a prayer life where it's not just your agenda you're laying in front of God or a prayer list you're moving through, but setting aside time to be with God where the only agenda is to be with God and to let that prayer time become God's agenda. Sometimes what I do is I, I set a timer, and this may not be the best prayer practice. I don't know. It works for me. <laughs> sometimes I'll set a timer for 10, 15, 30 minutes, and I just tell myself, I'm going into the presence of God, and I'm going to be there until this phone goes off. I put my phone on do not disturb, so phone calls, text messages don't come through. It's just me in the presence of God, and I'm going to be there until, it, until it's over. You pray in the Spirit. Three, you keep yourselves in the love of God. It's called a perseverance to being rooted Keep yourselves in the love of God. Four, you look forward to the mercy. So you're focused on, you're looking forward to the mercy that comes in Jesus. And the fifth is that you have mercy. And he ends by saying you have mercy, and, and this kind of mercy extends itself in a few different ways. Um, you have mercy on some who are wavering. You save others by snatching them out of the fire. And you have mercy on still others who fear, hating even the tunic defiled by their bodies. And by you having mercy and extending mercy in the world, salvation's going to come in and through that. All right, so here's, here's a word for the church. I told you last week, I usually share once a year, kind of the summer that rocked my world in 1997 when I came to God. I had made a decision. I had been baptized before that, but it was 1997 when Jesus became the Lord of my life. I remember being in a class at that church camp where there were a number of people my age who had stumbled and fall. We had fallen. We had made decisions that were, decisions that were far from obedience to God. And I remember there was one class where the teacher of the class, he took a dirty penny and at the beginning of the class, he said, while I teach this, I want you just to pass this around. I want you just to sit there and rub the penny, maybe see what year it is. You couldn't, when we first started, we couldn't see the year on it. He said, I just want you to pass it around. And when I finish the class, I want you to give it back to me. So an hour went by and we just passed that penny around. And by the end of the class, it was a shiny penny again. The oil of our fingers had taken much of that dirt off where you could actually see the year on the penny. And I remember him just holding it up and saying, for those of you who feel like you have already fallen so far from God, you need to know that Jesus can, can wash over you. His blood can cover you to where you are made brand new again. 
For some of us, it was one of, up to that point in our lives, the most transforming things we had ever experienced. And I remember something he taught us too, was that whenever we are teaching little kids to walk and they take a few steps and they fall, we don't kick them or punish them. We gently pick them back up and stand over them, helping to learn to walk again. Both of my kids took their first steps right here in Memphis. Though we moved here when Truett was, had already taken his first step, he was walking. We moved here, Truett was one. We interviewed here in March. Truett was nine to 10 months old at the time. And at that point, we had not made a decision to move here, but on that interview, we were treated at a cheesecake corner, and that's when we felt the call of God on our lives, all right? <laughs> and we were standing in the Hinkle's house when Truett took his first step. He took a couple of steps, and then he just fell, kind of, kind of plopped, all right? And Noah was born here, and a year later, he took a few steps in our living room, and he just fell and plopped. And when this happened, we celebrated how our boys took steps. We didn't focus on how they fell. And I think some of you in this room have focused so much on how you have fallen that it's time for you to take a hold of the hand of Jesus as reaching out to you, telling you it's time to get up again. The word of Jesus today for you may not be to take off and sprint or to go run a marathon. It may just be, hey, I just want you to stand up on your feet and together we're going to take one step today and we're going to see where this leads us. And tomorrow we're going to take a few more to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us before the glorious presence of God without, without fault. That is great joy. I want to invite our elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go around the room to receive people. We're going to sing a song today, and however you need to recommit to God, commit to God, pray to God as we sing this song, let's sing it as a declaration. Can we stand together, and I'm going to pray for us before Kip and the praise team lead us in a song. I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads, and if you will, just open your hands where you are, raise your hands where you are, just to receive from the Lord today. God, I ask today that the Spirit of God will speak over the lives of people in this room to build themselves up in faith, to be focused on your mercy, to be people who extend your mercy. I pray, God, that you help us this week to live with established roots and a healthy rhythm, to stay connected to you, connected to the things that matter most. I pray, God, where there are forms of complacency and apathy, that you'll rebuke them in the name of Jesus, and that this week will be more than just being Christians by wearing the name only, but that our lives will reflect the confession we make. And God, if there are any words I said today that did not, did not honor your heart, your truth, your, your mission, your character, I pray those words fall to the ground and bear zero fruit, that they will not be remembered at all. But God, if I've shared anything this morning that is true to who you are, may it sink deep into hearts, establish roots, and bear great fruit this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.